Father in heaven, we are very, very grateful for the privilege to come together as a family, to study your words, to hear heaven speak while we on earth remain silent. And Lord, we know that there are many things that you desire to share with us, your people. And so we're just praying that you would forgive us of our sins, that you grant us the presence of your Holy Spirit, who's really the only effectual teacher of truth. We pray, Lord, that you'll give us a mind that has the capacity to hear, to understand, and to live the very words that you will give to us. And Lord, I pray that you'll press very strongly upon our heart the blessed privilege of this gift that you gave to this movement, December 25, 1865. That wonderful gift of the sanitarium work and medical missionary work. Lord, make it plain to our hearts, we pray. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The best way to get your blessing is, number one, to make sure that you have your Bible. All right? And so I hope you have a Bible. And when I say Bible, I mean Bible. I didn't say Bible app. I said Bible. Um, you want to find that, you, you know, we're going to get to a place where our batteries are going to run out and all these things. You want to make sure that you have a good sword in hand, that you know how to navigate through it, that you can mark it and let the scriptures connect one with the other. So I encourage you to carry your Bibles. No sin in having a Bible app. I want to make that clear. But of course, it is good to have the good old book. But if you want a double blessing, then I would also recommend that you have pen and paper. And so that way you can take notes. You can write down the references that are going to come before you. And then that way, by God's grace, we can be good Bereans, go back in our private quarters and study everything out that's been said and make sure that everything is according to thus saith the Lord. If there's one major issue that we have in our world today, it is none other than this word spiritualism. When you think of the word spiritualism, this is what it means. If you look at it from just a plain old dictionary explanation, it says a belief that departed spirits hold intercourse with mortals by means of physical phenomena, as by rapping or during abnormal mental states, as in trances or the like, commonly manifested through a medium or spiritism. Well, spiritualism is something that we have to pay attention to, not from the standpoint of studying it, but to be able to identify it. And that way, when you identify it, you understand that you've come in contact with an enemy. And spiritualism is the enemy not just of us, it's the enemy of God, it's the enemy of God's truth. But the thing that I want us to understand even more so is that spiritualism is not limited to this definition that we're reading here. It's not limited to that. Because this would be kind of an easy thing to avoid if you are a Seventh-day Adventist. And maybe I should ask that question. Is there anyone that is here that is not part of the Seventh-day Adventist community? Is there anyone here? You are not a part of the family of Seventh-day Adventists. If you're here, I just want to give a special welcome to you. Is there anyone here like that? Welcome, my brother. We are so glad you're here. Because of the fact that you're here, it helps me understand a greater relevance of why I'm standing here. And so I'm very thankful to, that you joined us today, all right? Is there anyone else that is part, not part of the Seventh-day Adventist community? All right? So then the majority of us are. And if you are a Seventh-day Adventist, well, we understand spiritualism in this context. You've got to watch out for that, you know, talking to departed spirits and these type of things. But I want to show us something a little bit deeper. When we consider the Bible, let's go to the book of Genesis chapter 3. Genesis, the third chapter. And I want you to watch this with me as we go ahead and study the word. In Genesis chapter 3, Eve is talking to a snake. And I want you to see what the Bible says about this story because there's some pretty deep uh, points that come out of it. 
in Genesis, the third chapter, we're going to go ahead and start right there at verse 1. When you get there, just let me know by saying amen. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 3, starting at verse 1, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? The woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Now, I want you to pay close attention to this, because what we just read is literally the foundation of spiritualism. It's the foundation of it. It's a little bit more than so-called departed spirits talking to people. The foundation of spiritualism is saying that though God has made explicit command and has made explicit word expressed to his people, when we begin to believe that we can violate what God has said and we can still receive the blessings to be connected with God and to be forever with God and have immortality in the midst of our disobedience, this is foundational to this thing called spiritualism. And the reason why this is important is I'm going to show you how all of this ties back into the great relevance of why the world today, in 2017, needs gospel medical missionary evangelists. Watch this. What was the devil's first lie? Let's go ahead and let's review what we just read. Number one, now the serpent was more what? Subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. So the serpent didn't just come out there as a vicious, dangerous creature. The serpent was very subtle, sneaky. But then it says, and the serpent said unto the woman, you shall not surely die. Okay, that's that lie. Then it says, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open and you shall be as what? You shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. I looked up the word gods. When I looked up the word gods, it's that Hebrew word Elohim. And it says, God's in the ordinary sense, but specifically used in the plural thus, especially with the article of the supreme God. So literally, Satan was saying, if you violate the very words of God, you shall actually be like the supreme God. This is actually what he was trying to perpetuate to Adam and to Eve. So I want to break this down. Number one, we see that the devil first came in an unsuspecting manner that was friendly and unassuming. Okay? He came because, again, ladies, if you saw a serpent today, not even talking to you, but if you just saw a serpent on the ground, would you go in the same direction or the opposite? You would go in the opposite. You understand the danger of that serpent. Well, Eve didn't see a danger in it. In fact, Eve was very attracted to it. And so Eve is walking towards this serpent and hearing this serpent out. I remember I was studying some, you know, different things with Egyptology many, many, many years ago before I was a uh, Christian. And I was part of different Egyptian religions. And I remember that there, there would be paintings like this that you would see. And you would see that the serpent has what here? What do you see there? It had wings. These were like scientific readings and studies that they did. They found out that serpents many, many, many years ago were very beautiful creatures. And they actually had wings. And of course, the wings would obviously infer that they could fly. Well, here it is one day. I'm reading one of the wonderful documentaries of our history a book called Patriarchs and Prophets, and as I was going through it, here's what it said. 
In order to accomplish his work unperceived, Satan chose to employ as his medium the serpent, a disguise well adapted for his purpose of deception. The serpent was then one of the wisest and most what kind of creatures? Beautiful creatures on the earth. It had what? Wings. And while flying through the air, presented an appearance of dazzling brightness, having the color and brilliancy of burnished gold. Resting in the rich laden branches of the forbidden tree and regaling itself with the delicious fruit, it was an object to arrest the attention and delight the eye of the beholder. Thus in the garden of peace lurked the destroyer, watching for his prey. And so obviously Eve is seeing this dazzling creature and she's entering into a dialogue. So again, the serpent was coming to her in, again, a very friendly, unassuming manner. Don't lose that. Then it says, he presented a deceptive message to violate the commands of God and it would prove a benefit by giving them eternal life as a God. This is literally what was happening in Genesis 3, 1 through 6. Then... As a result of yielding to the temptation, Adam and Eve brought to themselves and the world the irrevocable punishment of sin and death. Massive deception. You understand that? All of this is what happened with the first lie. Now, the reason why this is important is because the same way that we just asked the question, what was the devil's first lie? We see that it was directly connected to the foundation of spiritualism. I wonder. What would be the devil's last lie? We're not talking past truth anymore. We're talking present truth. It's not just what was the devil's first lie. My question is, what's going to be his last lie? And I want you to watch how the Bible prepares it to us or brings it to us as we consider this. In Revelation 13 and verse 3, notice what the Bible says. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world did what? Wondered after the beast and he exercises all the power of the first beast before him and causes the earth and them which dwell therein to do what worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed and then of course it says in verse 16 and he causes all both small and great rich and poor free and bond to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads so this is talking about the first and second beasts of revelation 13 these are the final closing beast powers that God's people are going to face, of which we're going to really have to be tested to know if we're going to stand true to our God during these final moments of the investigative judgment. And here it is that in Satan's last lie to humanity, there's going to be this effort where he's going to cause the people to wonder after the beast, by which they will worship the beast, by which they will receive the mark of the beast. Now let's go ahead and break that down. To wonder means to admire, okay? That's what it means. It means to admire. To wonder means to admire or hold in a position of amazement. Satan, through the beast power, will cause the world to stand in awe at him and his ways. So Satan's going to do something that's going to dazzle the mind of the people. He's going to do something pretty powerful. In fact, let me magnify this in Matthew chapter 24. Go there with me. In Matthew, the 24th chapter... Notice this, and I want you to watch it very, very carefully. Matthew, we're going to what chapter? 24. We're going to Matthew 24, and I want you to notice what the Bible says as we look at Matthew 24, and we're going to consider verse 24. 
Jesus is expounding on last day events. And as he's walking his disciples through all of these things that's going to happen in the last days, the Bible says in Matthew 24 and verse 24, and if you're there, please say amen. amen. Notice this. The Bible says in Matthew 24, verse 24, it says, For there shall arise what kind of Christ? False Christ and false prophets, and shall show great what? Signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, he shall deceive even the very elect. Okay? Very, very serious time. Even the very elect, the very chosen of God, if they are not rooted and grounded in Christ, the devil's power will be so forcefully demonstrated that it might even trip up the very elite of God's army. Now, when I looked at that, I wondered, signs and wonders. Signs and wonders equals deception. But watch, it goes a little bit deeper than that. Go now to Revelation 13. Watch this. Lord began to bring this thing to my head, and I said, look at that. That is something else. Revelation, the 13th chapter, because we just saw that the beast is going to cause the people to wonder. That's for sure. But I want you to watch it a little bit more carefully. Revelation. We're going to what chapter? We're going to Revelation chapter 13. Now I want you to see what the Bible says here. In Revelation 13, I thought it very interesting as we consider verses 11 to 14. And I want you to watch this. In Revelation 13, 11 to 14, we're going to notice a very important connection here. Keeping in mind that the false Christ and the false prophets who are going to seek to deceive are going to use lots of signs and wonders. So I used to think to myself, so is it the signs and the wonders that actually deceive the people? Well, let's notice what the Bible says. And I want you to pay attention to every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Watch this. In Revelation 13, starting at verse 11, And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. And he exercises how much? He exercises all the power of the first beast before him and causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Now watch verses 13 and 14. And he doeth great what? Wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. A miracle. But then it says something very important in verse 14. It says, and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, What's the next word? Same. So notice that. Does the miracle, and then he has a message. You understand that? Does the miracle, and then comes the message. It says, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast. So the purpose of the miracle is to dazzle the mind. It is to cause awe in the beholder. It is to cause the individuals to look at whatever's going on in such incredible amazement that somehow it causes the mind that's beholding the wonder to say, truly, these people must be with God. And then after they do the dazzling wonder, then the next step is they have a message. And their message is, you should make an image to the beast. And because of the power of that incredible wonder, it causes those people to say, you know what? We will either agree by intellect or agree by pressure. And they're going to fall in line with the beast power. Now, why is that important? Because, again, we're talking about the last slide. So first slide, we understood that. Now we're looking at last slide. To wonder means to admire or hold in a position of amazement. Satan, through the beast power, will cause the world to stand in awe at him and his ways. We need to flesh that out a little bit more. So we're going to do that. 
Number two, Satan will then cause or force the world to worship him, which is to violate the commands of God, is it not? God is the only one worthy of our worship. And here it is that he's going to cause the people to worship him by submitting to his deceptive message of setting up an image to the beast as a solution to life's problems. Don't lose that point. As a solution to life's problems. What's going to get the people to buy into it? First the dazzling, after the dazzling, then they're going to come with what's going to appear to be very, very strong logic. And they're going to give a message that's going to encourage the people, you need to go ahead and follow along with our references, our recommendations, yay, our commands. After this, of course, the people yielding to this deceptive message, they will receive an irrevocable mark which seals them in sin and brings eternal death. This is the devil's last effort. This is what's getting ready to come to an experience near you and me. And the question is, where do we all stand in the midst of this, and what are we doing about it? You see, I have a question, and the question is very simple. What are the wonders that ultimately causes the world to follow the beast? Well, we just read it. We just read it, right? We saw that there was going to be miracles. It said that in verse 13, and he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven and the earth in the sight of men. So he's going to do a lot of these miracles, and it's going to get a lot of people's attention. Well, here's the thing. Started to study it a little bit more, and I began to notice something that God said about the last days. Notice this. The Bible says this know also, that in the last days, perilous times shall come. And I agree with that. It says, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, and lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Now, there's no question that this is a description of what's happening in our world right now. This is what's happening all over the world. This is what's happening from city to city and from now country to country. It seems like everything is in chaos. But that's not where the verse finishes. Because the verse continues by saying that these people who were like that have a form of godliness. They have a form of godliness, but their issue is that they are denying the power thereof. And the Bible says, from such do what? Turn away. Now, I am here to let you know. Our world does not have a form of godliness. You can go down the streets of wherever city you want, and you will see that they are not only sinful, they're bold about it. They put it on billboards, they put it in books, they blast it through their music. It's written all throughout the malls and everywhere, movies, etc. The world is sinful, the world is bold about it, and the world is definitely interested in de-educating you and I. So the world does not have a form of godliness, but the church does. And so what the Bible is showing is that there is a crisis that's coming in these last days that impacts not only the world, but also the church. It impacts everywhere. And so when we think about what should the church be doing, knowing that this is the last lie of Satan, this is going to be the effort of Satan, what should we be doing well, I can say we definitely shouldn't be having a form of godliness. That is what's destroying us. Because always remember this point, according to the verse, 
Forms of godliness equals no power. Remember that lesson. Forms of godliness equals no power. That was the issue that ultimately ended up plaguing even the church. Now, the reason why this is important is because as I'm looking at these points, so far, we looked at the first lie of the devil. The first lie of the devil was foundational to what? Spiritualism. When we look at spiritualism, we're not just looking at it as so-called deceased loved ones talking to people or what have you. But we're understanding spiritualism to be foundationally a lie that you can disobey God and still receive immortality. That you can still have all the blessings that God has promised. This is the lie that he set up in the beginning. It's the lie that he set up in the end. To deceive the world, to deceive the churches. You don't have to do everything God says. You don't have to follow meticulously every single point. You can go ahead and violate where it is convenient. God loves you, he will bless you, and still give you eternity, yea, immortality, anyhow. This is the perpetuating lie, all right? Beginning of time, end of time. Now, God obviously wants to warn us from this, and he says, and please understand that it looks like the devil's message is definitely coming along, because today, boy, oh boy, I mean, I marvel at how today that, you, I, I'm not that old, you know, but I'm old enough to remember this. I remember when I was in the world and we would watch programs like I Love Lucy, Honeymooners. I used to watch these worldly programs. Some of you know nothing of what I'm talking about, and that's fine. But I remember that these programs would have a husband and a wife, but when they went to bed, the wife was in one bed and the husband was in another bed. And I remember as a child, I used to see my mother and father go to bed in the same bed. But I'm watching a program about a husband and wife, and they're sleeping in different beds. And I remember saying, Mom, Dad, why are they doing that? I mean, you, you're married, you sleep in the same bed, but they're not sleeping. And they say, oh, no, son. What, they, what, what they're trying to do in television is they want to give off the most purest impression to the beholders, to not cause any suggestions in the mind of sensuality or sexuality. So the movies back in those days were, were making an effort to be so pure that they wouldn't even let the beholders, the TV watchers, they wouldn't let them see a husband and a wife lying in bed together. Can you imagine that? Is that what we see today? Again, the world is sinful and the world is bold about it. Is that right? There are things that are taking place today that would cause many others in those 1940s and 50s to turn over in their graves, quote unquote, of the level of disgust that we see being put forth, not just before adults, but also our precious youth. And so God warned us that in the last days, this is what's gonna start happening in the world. But then God made it worse and he said, listen, this is what's also gonna happen in the churches. My brothers and sisters, listen, when, when the world votes, Sometimes we don't know how to direct our, our, our righteous indignation. When the world says, we believe that homosexual union between two individuals, male to male, female to female, we believe that it should be honored even with the precious gift of marriage. Though I might be disgusted by such behavior and decisions, 
I'm not surprised. Worldlings are going to do what worldlings do. You understand that? That's not an issue for me. I'm like, what do you expect the world to do? I mean, again, I'm going to see what's happening. I'll certainly be hurt by it. And I'll say, oh, this is terrible. This should not be, etc. But I'm not surprised. Because worldlings do what worldlings do. A frog cannot help but to behave like a frog. A horse cannot help but to behave like a horse. A worldling cannot help but to behave like a worldling except they be converted. But when ministers, when churches begin to say, we agree with the world. When the churches begin to say, we will officiate some of these same-sex union marriages. When the churches dare to open up the sacred word of God and use stories like the relationship between David and Jonathan to try to say that God endorses this. My brothers and sisters, when we get to a time like that, and now the ministers are also gay, the elders are also gay, and all of these other things, and lesbian, and LGBT, etc. when we start seeing that, I know it is perilous times. It is perilous times, because now there's no more lighthouse. See, the world's already dark by default, but God raised up the church to be a light. And so the question is, what kind of light are we shining before the world? So when I start looking at these things, I begin seeing a major, major problem, yea, a major crisis. It's not just the world, but it's also many of the churches that are falling into this condition. So I pick up this little book, Great Controversy. When I picked it up, there's some powerful statements in it that are relevant to our study. Observe. Through the agency of spiritualism, miracles will be wrought. What will happen? The sick will be healed. Sick being healed connected to spiritualism. Interesting. It says, through the agency of spiritualism, miracles will be wrought. The sick will be healed, and many undeniable wonders will be performed. It says, and as the spirits will profess faith in the Bible and manifest respect for the institutions of the church, their work will be accepted as a manifestation of divine power. Watch this. The line of distinction between professive Christians and the ungodly is now hardly distinguishable. Is that true? Is that true? There are some churches you can go into and you say, I thought I left the club. You understand that? So there's that, that, that's that thing that's happening, okay? So it says that they're hardly distinguishable. It says church members love what the world loves and are ready to join with them. And Satan determines to unite them in one body and thus strengthen his cause by sweeping all into the ranks of what? And remember, the foundation of spiritualism is to believe. It's not just the manifestation of all these miracles per se. That is true, but directly connected to that, foundational to that, is the idea that I don't have to do what God says, or I don't have to do everything God says, but I could still have immortality and eternity anyhow. You understand that? Don't forget that point. That is the, what we call, end result of the spiritualistic deception. You understand that? All right, continuing. 
It says, papists who boast of miracles as a certain sign of the true church. Notice that. Papists boast of miracles as a certain sign. This is the true church. When they see the miracles, there goes the true church. Papists who boast of miracles as a certain sign of the true church will be readily deceived by this wonder-working power. And Protestants, having cast away the shield of truth, will also be deluded. Then it goes ahead and summarizes pretty much everybody. It says, Papists, Protestants, and worldlings will alike accept the what? Form of godliness without the power. Isn't that something? You see, form of godliness, these spiritualistic exercises, all these miraculous events. But at the end of the day, there's no power to transform the life. We just become dazzled sinners. You understand that? This is the issue. This is the crisis. So watch this. It says, will alike accept the form of godliness without the power, and they will see in this union a grand movement for the conversion of the world and the ushering in of the long-expected millennium. They're going to think that there's a movement going on for God. When the truth of the matter is, is that movement is against God. Continuing. Through spiritualism, Satan appears as a what? As a benefactor of the race, the human race. It says, healing the diseases of the people. Notice that again. Healing the diseases of the people. We saw earlier, relieving and curing the sick. Now it's talking about healing the diseases of the people and professing to present a new and more exalted system of religious faith. But it says, but at the same time, he works as a destroyer. His temptations are leading multitudes to ruin. Why? Because though the people have come into the church, the problem is they have not changed. So notice, intemperance dethrones reason. Sensual indulgence, strife, and bloodshed follow. This is the work of the deceptive power. It concludes in this point here where it says, Satan delights in war, for it excites the worst passions of the soul, and then sweeps into eternity its victims steeped in vice and blood. It is his object to incite the nations to war against one another, for he can thus divert the minds of the people from the work of preparation to stand in the day of God. You got more people worried about Kim Jong-un and whether he's going to drop a nuclear bomb than it is all well between myself and my Savior. He wants to distract the mind in any way possible. Putin is suddenly forgotten because now everybody's focused on Korea, even though Russia is still a massive danger. People aren't paying attention to the real issues that are preparing for a final delusion and deception and a final crisis. People aren't paying attention to that. And they're getting caught up in the non-essentials. So what's happening is the devil has sought to do this in such a way to deceive the mind of the people. And the question is this, is he succeeding? Are there things happening where we're seeing papists and Protestants and all these efforts going about doing miracles, especially in the lines of healing, to captivate the minds of the people? Well, if you don't know, now you know. Christianity Today, Christianity Today, just a few years ago, put out an incredible article. A new age of miracles is what they said in the article. What were they talking about? What they said is around the world, wherever churches are growing, reports of the miraculous are rampant. What do they mean? That's the question that was asked in the article. Here's the answer. Larry, there was a gentleman named Larry. He was very, very sick. He went to doctors several times, kind of like the man at the pool of Bethesda. And here it is that it says, Larry, 
he went through years of multiple surgeries, but they did nothing for him. And one of the top specialists in the country had told him to stop hoping for a cure and accept the excruciating pain as it was. Then, at the invitation of a friend, he rolled his wheelchair into a Pentecostal church one Sunday morning. He walked out pain-free. That was four years ago. He has never felt pain in his feet since, and at a word of prayer, he was completely and instantly healed. Well, here's what it says. It says, yet we live in a Pentecostal age. So it wasn't like just that location. We're living in an age, an era of time. And it says here, we live in a Pentecostal age around the world, wherever churches are growing, reports of miracles are rampant. Many Christians regard miracles as extremely important. Pay attention to that. Because we're also living in a time that we now have a president who's really trying to unite with the evangelicals to help the world come back to Jesus. A criterion for the Christian to know that God is with or with not a church or a preacher or an individual who says they're leading by God is that they look for miracles. It says modern Americans tend to think of miracles as proof, proof that God is real and powerful, that he can break into the natural world with supernatural power. So the minds of the people in America is already set up to look for the miracles that we already have studied is going to lead them right down the road of perdition. Of course, this is just a few years ago. This is not terribly long ago. 2015, of course, the head of the first beast. We just talked about some things pertaining to the second beast in the previous slide, America. But now we're talking about the first beast. It says here, the healing pope. This is one of the wonderful nicknames of Pope Francis. He's called the healing pope. He said, it says, the healing pope, list of miracles performed by Pope Francis. And here's what it says. Pope Francis may yet earn the accolade, the healing pope for the miracles he has been performing when touching people with serious health problems. And there's been some recordings of this, and this is just one of many. It says, performing miracles is nothing new to Pope Francis. It says, just last month, before he began his visits to Cuba and the U.S., Pope Francis abruptly stopped his motorcade in the rain and asked his aide to bring to him the baby he saw being lifted at the barricade by her parents at St. Peter's Square. The Pope briefly placed his palm on the chest of the three-month-old girl who was suffering from Down syndrome and had two holes in her heart. So he just, you know, put his hand there, wished the blessings. What was the conclusion of this? Later, when the doctors checked, hold on. My little clicker's going a little fast there. Let me bring it back. All right. Next and next. Here we go. Later, when the doctors checked on the baby, they found one of the two holes had completely closed while the other one was reduced to half its former size. So the people were singing the praises, of course, of, wow, look at what Pope Francis was able to do. He was able to heal, etc. And these are just some manifestations, my friends, that we're going to hear a whole lot more and see a lot more according to the prophetic pen. So the question is very simple. What does the church have to address this problem? We know where it's leading to. The most recent events third largest earthquake to happen in history, or recorded history, hurricanes, storms, fires, all these things. When we read Great Controversy 589, 590, it tells us that all of this is preparing for that great final event, the great last delusion, ultimately to bring in a final crisis 
to the people of God, a Sunday law. These are the things that are getting ready to take place. So the question is, what do we have to address this problem? Does anybody have an idea what we have? What do we have? We have medical missionary work. Is that what I heard? Gospel. Okay. Go to Revelation 14. Let's consider it. I want you to go ahead and consider Revelation 14 right there, just in verse 6. What does the church have that can help address this problem? Let's notice what the Bible says. In Revelation, the 14th chapter, there's something God gave to the church to give to the world that can address this problem. In Revelation 14, what does the Bible say? It says, and I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven. What did the angel have? It had the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell upon the earth to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. So the church has in its possession the everlasting gospel. What is the everlasting gospel? Notice what inspiration says. Everlasting gospel is a wonderful simplifier of life's problems. Did you catch that? The everlasting gospel is a wonderful simplifier of life's problems. That's what the church has. You know, somebody one day asked me, who is it that has this everlasting gospel? I said, well, I checked everywhere. I used to be Muslim. I used to be Pentecostal, Baptist, and then I was non-denominational. I was all of that before I became a Seventh-day Adventist. Now, I've been a Seventh-day Adventist for 25 years. I think I'm sold. Now, watch this. But the reason I'm sold is because I understand what God has given to us as a movement. I understand what we have in our possession. But the question is not what we have in libraries. The question is, what do you have in your possession? You understand that? Now, watch this. The reason that's important is because when somebody came to me and said, Dwayne, in simplest terms, tell me what a Seventh-day Adventist is. I have many, many non-Seventh-day Adventist acquaintances. And one day somebody said, what are Seventh-day Adventists? Honestly, what are they? I said, I can answer that question in two words. And they said, go ahead. What are the two words? Explain Seventh-day Adventists in two words. My two words were problem solvers. Do you get that? If we really understood what we have, we can face any problem in this world. And under the power of the Holy Spirit, God can use us to solve it. If somebody is having economic problems, God has given us the Bible and he's given us counsels on stewardship that we can solve that economic problem. If somebody has a problem in their home, God gave us the Bible and he gave us Adventist home. We can solve any problem. Somebody has a problem with their child, God gave us the Bible and he gave us child guidance. Somebody has a problem with their teenager, God gave us the Bible, he gave us messages to young people. Somebody says, I have a problem with my diet, God gave us the Bible, counsels on diets and foods, medical ministry, ministry of healing. I mean, we have everything. We have been given, invested with the highest level of knowledge, wisdom, and understanding from the most holy place. And God has given that to us, that we can know how to solve the problem. But you know what? We have a problem. That's strange, Brother Calvin. We're the problem solvers, but we have a problem. That's not good. 
We can see the problems that are coming to our world. God has given to us the solution to all the life's problems. We know how to simplify life's problems. But the issue is, God prophetically showed us we have a problem. And I want you to see what the problem is. Go to Revelation chapter 3. It's in Revelation, the third chapter, that I want you to see what the Bible says. In Revelation, the third chapter, we have a problem. Now, Revelation, the third chapter, when you get there, please say amen. Amen. The Bible says in Revelation 3 and verse 14, it says, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot, and so then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. That's a problem. Someone or a group of individuals who think they're all right when they're all wrong. This is a problem. But this is to the Laodiceans, the people of the judgment. This directly connects back to Revelation 14 and verse 7. Fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come. And so it is that this Laodicean condition applies to the ones that God gave everything to solve problems. We have a problem. Our problem is we think we're all right. We're actually all wrong. Our problem is we think everything's okay when things are not okay. Our problem is that we think we're in right standing with God when we're actually in wrong standing with God. And so it is that I believe that that verse we read a little earlier where it says, having a form of godliness and denying the power thereof from such turn away, I've learned, Lord have mercy on me, I can be included in that picture. Form of godliness. Do you show up to church every Sabbath? Yes, you do. Do you stop doing certain things and start doing certain things when the sun sets on Friday evening? Yes, you do. But God says, but what's going on in your heart? God says, don't you understand by now, family, that only those who have a heart like mine are the ones that goes into my house. Because if we don't have a heart like God's, then we only have the natural heart that God already spoke about. Somebody says, oh, God knows my heart. Yes, he does. He wrote about it. He said in Jeremiah 17, right there in verse 9, the heart is deceitful, above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? Why would God let a heart like that in his house? God says, I already had a heart like that in my house, and it caused havoc in my family. You understand that? So God doesn't want that kind of heart. But it's either that heart or the new heart. And so the Lord is making it very clear that while we can look to others and we can say the world and those churches, many of us, if we're not careful, we might find ourselves exactly where the world and those churches are. Jesus said, many will come to me in that day and say, Lord, didn't I? Do you know how many people came here that we were the instruments of healing to them? Didn't you see how we had cancer patients and they left here without cancer? Didn't you see how we had people with MS and they left out here without MS? Lord, were you paying attention when somebody came here with AIDS and they don't have AIDS anymore? What do you mean I can't come in? And God is going to say, depart from me, 
God's going to say, you did work. But he's going to call that work for what it is. He says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I don't want God to say that about me. And I know you don't want God to say that about you. And so there is a heart reform that we need. This is why, my friends, we have this thing called revival and reformation. That's the whole reason why this exists. The thing that God wants with each and every one of us is he wants us to experience a true revival that can lead to true reformation. And what is it that God wants revived? What does he want revived? What does he want? Notice, a revival of what? True. Now, isn't that the perfect solution to 2 Timothy 3, 5? Verse 5 says the issue with the churches was that they had a form of godliness. So what does God want the church to have? True godliness. Doesn't that make sense? That actually makes sense. A revival of true godliness among us is the greatest and most urgent of all of our needs. To seek this should be our what work? Our first work. Now, I've listened to many sermons about prayer. I've heard some wonderful gentlemen in our church preach about the need to pray more and to fast. Is that necessary? Amen. But there's more. I've heard many people say, oh my, we need to get back to the word of God and study like the disciples did in the upper room. Do we need to do more of that? Yes. I hear people, when they talk about revival and reformation, they talk about getting back into the communities. We talk about holding up clinics and all these wonderful things and helping people, etc. Do we need to do more evangelism? But my brothers and sisters, I wonder if true godliness can mean something in addition to that that is often glossed over. If we are going to have a revival of true godliness, what do you think is the first thing we need to understand? What is godliness? I mean, we've got to answer the question, and thank the Lord, 1 Timothy 3 helps us. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Let's bring out some closing points here. 1 Timothy chapter 3. This will be phase one of our several studies that we will have throughout this week. The need for gospel medical missionary evangelists in such a time as this. The beast is getting ready to do miracles and wonders, dazzle the mind, give a message that will lead to a close of probation. We saw that one of the ways it's going to do those dazzling wonders and so on is very much involving the healing work. But their work is to help sick sinners become better sinners. That's an issue. And so it is that we're looking at this problem. We're saying, Lord, how can we be part of the solution? Very simple. Notice what the Bible says. So in 1 Timothy chapter 3, it says in verse 16, and without controversy, great is the what? mystery of godliness. It says, God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. Who's this talking about? Jesus. None of those latter points would take place were it not for the fact that God was manifest in the flesh. God was manifest in the flesh. Then, seen of angels, justified in the spirit, etc. I want us to focus on this because we're talking about true godliness. When we think of true godliness, we think of none other than Jesus. The revival that we need is a revival of true godliness. The more that we get back in harmony with God with true godliness, the better that we can do the work that God gave us to do. 
it says here that godliness was manifested by God being coming in the flesh. Let's flesh that out. It says, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but did what? Made himself of no reputation. This speaks of humility. This speaks of serious biblical Christian humility. But then it also says, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Christ was God, equal with the Father. He maintained his equality, but he garbed himself with flesh, and he chose to not carry forth a reputation, though he was worthy of it. And he served. These are snippets of this idea of godliness. I'm talking beyond prayer life, study life, evangelistic life. Those are absolutely necessary. But I want us to look at this one because some of us have not made this connection. Here it is that when we look at this, Jesus was one who was humble and one who served. Okay? Very good. Now, I started to look carefully at how he did this because it's one thing for us to tell us what to do. It's another thing to show us how to do it. Does that make sense? So let's look at it. How did Jesus demonstrate this godliness? How did he demonstrate this humility and this servanthood? How did he do it? Notice what the Bible says. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to do what else? Heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, I want you to watch Jesus's method of medical missionary work, because it's different than what the devil is trying to do. The devil, is he going to do a healing work in the last days? Is he going to use that as a means of mesmerizing the minds and gaining followers? But the problem is, is that after he does that, he's going to actually give something contrary to the very words of Jesus. I want you to watch this. Go to the book of Matthew chapter 9. Watch Jesus in his gospel, medical, missionary, evangelistic work. Matthew 9. Notice what the Bible says. In Matthew, the ninth chapter, let's look at how Jesus did this work. Matthew, we're looking at chapter 9, and we're going to consider verses 1 to 6. And I want you to watch what Jesus did, because here we see that when Jesus did his servanthood work, he kept combined preaching and healing. You see that? Preaching and healing. Recover, preaching and recovering of sight. That's the same thing as healing. Preaching and healing. Preaching and healing. Now watch this. When it says here in Matthew 9, it says, And he entered into a ship and passed over and came into his own city. And behold, they brought to him a man sick of the palsy, lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, be of good cheer, thy what? Thy sins be forgiven thee. Now, and behold, certain of the scribes and said within themselves, this man blasphemeth. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? For whether it is easier to say, thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, arise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. Then saith he to the sick of the palsy, arise, take up thy bed, and go unto thine house. Did you see the spiritual work being done there? What was the spiritual work? Thy sins be forgiven thee. Did you see the physical work being done? Yes, the physical work. Now, here's the big question. Why was the physical healing done? Say again. 
Yes, but why, so why did he even do the physical work? Here's your clue. The answer's in the verse. He said, that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. I say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. So he did his physical work to endorse his spiritual work. You got that? That was the rationale of him doing his physical healing, was to endorse his spiritual healing, his spiritual work. Now look at John 5. This one I like because I want you to notice these words, because these words are in complete contrast. This is the contrast to what we see happening in our world today in this false form of bringing individuals to Christ and, of course, leading to deception. John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, notice what the Bible says. The story is very, very familiar, I would imagine, to many of us. This is the man who was at the pool of Bethesda, sick for 38 years. And I want you to notice what the Bible says. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is at Jerusalem, by the sheep market, a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And a certain man was there which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Will thou be made whole? The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool, but while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed and walk. And immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked, and on the same day was the Sabbath. Now verse 14 is very key. Afterward Jesus findeth him in the temple and said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole. What does he tell him next? Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. So notice that, again, with Jesus, he always kept the physical and the spiritual work connected. Is that right? Okay. And in that, when he did the spiritual work, it always dealt with an eradication of sin. You follow that? This is in complete contrast to the beast power. The beast power heals to embolden in sin. So the true gospel medical missionary worker should do the work of healing that we can call individuals to sin no more. You see that difference? This is absolutely key in doing this work. If we do the work of healing by which we empower people to sin better, we are doing a greater work on the beast power side than we are on God's side. You understand that? Now, this is why we are told very clearly in inspiration, Christ gave a perfect representation of what? True godliness by combining the work of a what? Physician and a minister, ministering to the needs of both body and soul, healing physical disease, and then speaking words that brought peace to the troubled heart. God says, I want a revival of that. God says, I want a revival of that. Does he want a revival of deep prayer? Yes. Does he want a revival of deep Bible study? Yes. Does he want a revival of hard evangelism? Yes. Does God want a revival of the medical missionary work? Yes. And the reason why is because it is the counter. It is the true work. The devil is counterfeiting God's work right now. 
all this healing work that he's been doing and have been doing for years, building up confidence so that the people will follow the message after the miracle. Did you know that that was first God's plan? The devil just counterfeited it. What do we call the health work? We call it the entering wedge, don't we? So as we do the healing work, after we bless the individuals by relieving them from their suffering, their ailments and sicknesses, does it not prepare their minds to receive our message? Go and sin no more. The devil has counterfeited this. And the problem that we're seeing in our world today, God says, I've given through the medical missionary work a solution. If we can keep these two together, and we're going to flesh this out throughout our time together this week. If we can keep these two together, we will see a demonstration of godliness in our world that the world has not seen for a long time. You see, my brothers and sisters, look at this quote. How shall we reveal Christ? I know of no better way than to take hold of the medical missionary work in connection with the ministry. God has endorsed this work tremendously. It's a solution to the deceptive power because while the devil's doing his work to heal that others may sin better, God is calling us to do his work to heal that we may say go and sin no more. And God needs to raise up more workers. And I thought about it. We need power. And when I say we need power, I'm talking about serious power. I'm talking about this kind of power. You know, we are very timid in medical missionary work. And I want you to listen carefully to what I'm about to say here. Because I was reading a little book by a gentleman named M.L. Andreasen. His book was called Prayer. And he brought out a point that I have not considered. When I was going through the book, Elder Andreasen stated, did you know that in the New Testament, we have recorded only two times by which God's people prayed and then a miracle took place in the form of healing and resurrection. Only two times. Now, do we have a whole list of healing in the Bible, in the New Testament? Do we have a whole lot of healing in these type of things? Oh, yes. But he said, but only two times they prayed. Peter with Tabitha, Jesus with Lazarus. That's the only time you see prayer first, then the work was done. The miracle was done. He said the other times, Jesus would see somebody with a demon, and Jesus would say, come out of them. Paul would see somebody, or, or, or Peter and John, they're there, and the man at the gate, beautiful, and he's asking for help, and these brothers would just say, listen, silver and gold have I not, but such have I give I unto thee. In the name of Jesus, get up. It got me thinking. Then I looked at Peter's prayer with Tabitha. This is where it got more interesting. When Peter prayed for Tabitha, Peter did not pray, Lord, listen to these words carefully, because these words are, are probably repeated at every sanitarium on the globe. If it be your will, raise this person up. If not, you know, give them grace to bear with it. Now, is that a wrong prayer? We have a whole chapter in ministry of healing called prayer for the sick. And we are told that we are to say, Lord, if it be your will, right? 
There's nothing wrong with that. But why is it that Peter didn't have to say that? Why is it that him and John, when they're together, they say, in the name of Jesus, just get up. Get up and walk. Why is it that Paul is preaching all night, brother gets tired, falls asleep, falls down, dies. Paul goes down, brother, get back up. And he gets back up. And I began to think to myself, the disciples' minds were so united with God that before they even did the work, God already made it known, I endorse it. And I thought to myself, I don't know a lot of medical missionaries that have that type of connection. And guess what? Here's where it got even deeper. That was under early rain power. Is early rain still here? What, what are we waiting for? We're waiting for the ladder. So you're going to get ladder without early? That means that early rain is present. God is ready to give early rain. We need early rain. If we don't have early rain, we definitely are not getting latter rain. That was under early rain power. But the, and forgive me for saying it this way if, it find, if you find it offensive, but I don't mean to offend. But I believe the lazy, faithless, many a times, Seventh-day Adventist mindset says, well, that will happen under the latter rain. God says, I respectfully disagree. There's these type of words. Why do we believe only the preaching of the gospel is the only manifestation of early rain power that we do now? But everything else that happened under early rain, that has to wait until the latter rain. What Bible verse do you get that from? There's, in other words, family, there's much more power waiting for us. That's the point. And so the question is, how can we get the attention of those in our surrounding communities? How can we get the attention of those who come here? That they don't come here sick sinners and leave healthier sinners. We need power. And there's a way that God gives that power. And we have to talk about that tomorrow. And so tomorrow, we're going to really talk about that. Because I have never been so compassionate towards the sick, like I have since the past few months ago. When a man who thought that he would never, ever have a physical complication, thought I was Superman, never been admitted into a hospital, and here it is, that something when I was a child, completely ignorant, I didn't know anything as a eight or 10 year old. And here it is, I get strep throat, wasn't taken care of very quickly, turns into rheumatic fever. They deal with it, but it damaged my heart, it was too late. And here it is 30 years later. By chance, I end up in a cardiologist's office. And all of a sudden, he's saying, Mr. Lemon, you have a problem. No symptom, completely asymptomatic. That did not mean I did not have a problem. Had to go through open heart surgery, December 19, 2016. Here it is that when that, I got tubes coming out of me. My chest has just been sawed open. Mr. Lemon, it's time to walk. This is the day after. And I said, I don't feel like walking. 
And he said, do you want to leave this hospital? <laughs> yes. He said, you need to walk. I said, please bring my slippers. <laughs> and I go ahead and I start walking. And when I walked past every room, and I just saw people just laid out. Day one, they're almost in the same exact position. I discovered a compassion towards the sick that I never had. I've always cared for sick people. But this was completely different. My heart was intertwined with them now. And you know what I started realizing? I said, Lord, I'm powerless. I have no power to help these people. Oh, yeah, I could say, oh, uh, take some activated charcoal or, you know, do this poultice, etc. Uh, yes, I can help them out with some of those things. And those things are not, I'm not here to put that down. Th those things are wonderful, family. I'm not here to put it down. But I'm just saying maybe God wants to do more. Maybe some of us got settled. Maybe we've gotten comfortable with health guests who come by and we've kind of put that clause in there. You might die, but at least you'll be all right. And here it is that Jesus walks through a village, and the Bible says not one person remained that was not relieved of their sickness. Not one. And I'm thinking, Father, is the problem with you or is the problem with us? Where is this gospel power? Because you know what the beast power is doing? He's touching children's heart and hearts' holes are closing. And I'm thinking to myself, yes, those works are going to be done. The devil is going to deceive. That's true. But what I'm saying, family, is that I believe with all of my heart there's more power that God wants to avail to each and every one of us. And I don't believe that the frustration is with God. The frustration is happening with us. We are not availing ourselves to be willing to go deeper. I know medical missionary institutes right now where if somebody's too sick, they actually turn them away. Can you imagine that? Somebody who has a degree of sickness that's so bad that they say, sorry, we can't take you. And I'm saying I saw nothing like that in the blueprint of Jesus in his medical missionary work. You could be leprous. And Jesus says, I'm not afraid to touch you. Because Jesus says, I know who's holding me while I touch you. We get caught up into political foolishness, and we're afraid to lose things. My brothers, you know, you get, listen, we're gearing up to lose everything. What you holding on for? Do God's work. God will protect you. We'll probably lose some of our buildings. Maybe it's time to lose some of the buildings. That's okay. I'm learning the principles of true surrender on a deeper level than I've ever studied it before. That word faith means trust. And the word trust means to turn over. And the question is, have you turned everything over to God? Are you still trying to run the organization? Or are you truly letting God run it? Even if it means that he's going to do whatever he has to do to allow us to go forward in real gospel power. My brothers and sisters, the world needs real gospel medical missionary evangelism like never before. And I praise God for a place like this that says, listen, we're not only willing to hear it, we're willing to be instruments in God's hands to get it done. And so by God's grace, beginning tomorrow, we're going to flesh out some of those things 
that will help us enter into that next phase of gospel power. We're going to define medical missionary work just a bit more clearly. We're going to be able to look back at this wonderful work in the times in which we're living that we, by God's grace, can be his problem solvers. And my question is very simple. How many of you are willing to be part of that solution that God is putting together? If you are, please stand to your feet with me. Let us pray together. Our loving Father, we are so thankful for your spirit speaking to our hearts, showing us the problem that is happening in our world, the problems that are happening in the church, but thankfully showing us a solution. This solution, we believe, is true gospel medical missionary evangelism, which is designed to reveal true godliness. Lord, I pray, help us all to take to heart what we have studied. Help us to cooperate with heaven that by your grace, we will be counted amongst those whom you will look at and say, here goes my problem solvers. Grant us thy spirit, we pray, and empower us to do that which only you can get the credit for. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.